1: Hi folks, today is the 350th anniversary of the most ambitious attempt to steal England's crown jewels in history. From the depths of the Tower of London, on the 9th of May 1671, Thomas Blood, what a great name, Thomas Blood tricked his way into the crown jewels, battered someone half to death, and made off with Charles II's crown and some of the most important treasures in the kingdom. It is an astonishing tale. And to tell us all about it is Sebastian Edwards. He's the Deputy Chief Curator at the Tower of London where the crown jewels are held to this day. You're going to love this. Learn all about Colonel Blood, known as the man who stole the crown jewels. If you want more 17th century history, there's plenty of it at historyhit.tv. You simply go to historyhit.tv, you sign up. And the good news, folks, breaking news from History Hit Towers is because it is the anniversary of VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. Announced on the 8th of May, 1945. Because it is VE Day, we have got one of our special, we haven't had one for ages, we've got a special sale on for HistoryHit.tv subscriptions. For this weekend only, TV is 50% off your first three months. Half price for three months. That takes you through the Bismarck anniversary the Barbarossa anniversary. It takes you through the premiere of our big project on prehistoric Britain. He's got it all. Simply use the code VEDAY and you will get 50% off your first three months. It's a sweet deal and it's over on Monday. Head over to historyhit.tv but in the meantime here is Sebastian Edwards on The Man Who Stole the Crown Jewels. Happy 350th, everyone. Sebastian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
2: My pleasure. Nice to be with you, Dan.
1: Well, we are talking about the greatest heist. I mean, people talk about the Great Train Robbery. I mean, honestly, this knocks the Great Train Robbery into obscurity, doesn't it? What an adventure this is.
2: It's absolutely an amazing story. There should have been many films made about this, and I don't think there has been one for a long time. 1671,
1: the Tower is back in royal hands following the Restoration. What was the importance of the Tower to Charles II? Was it one of his key stops on his peripatetic travels round England and Scotland, or was it having one of its kind of periodic out-of-favour periods?
2: Well, at the beginning of his reign, it was where he launched himself, because, of course, he was the last king to have a great procession from the Tower through the streets of the city, with his brand new regalia that he'd had to remake after the destruction of the crown jewels during the Commonwealth, which were kept there at that point. And so it was an important setting off point. But after that, he really, I think, lost interest in the Tower. It just didn't meet all his new requirements in re-establishing the monarchy after the Restoration.
1: And tell me about the new crown jewels. We've had Plantagenet crown jewel adventures on this podcast so often, but effectively, Parliament Oliver Cromwell Broke them up and sold nearly all of
2: it. Did anything endure? Well, we think there are three swords and the anointing spoon are the survivors and the regalia. Otherwise, everything else had to be largely remade. Although we know a number of jewels survived and they're mostly bought back after the Commonwealth sale. Great big sale of the majority of Charles' goods, apart from a few that Cromwell kept for himself. And so it was a brand new set of kit for the new king, but it was very much modelled on what people understood of the lost crown jewels. So it was intended to look as if nothing had changed, I suppose you could say. And the crown jewels,
1: we know famously King John, the useless idiot, allegedly lost great portions of the treasury and crown jewels in the wash as he was Escaping from one corner of his kingdom to another as he was beset with his various enemies, domestic and foreign. The crown jewels in this period were kept in the Tower of London or with the person of the king? Was it like today where it was almost a kind of ceremonial setting for the crown jewels, was the Tower of London?
2: They had been kept there for parts of them, not the entire crown jewels, on and off since the Middle Ages. And it was with Henry I, when there had been another great robbery from the crown jewels, that people had realised that leaving them at Westminster Abbey wasn't the safest basis under the of the abbey there. But it was very much a practical store when Charles II came to the throne. They were, in fact, at this time in the old jewel house, which is a very modest little tower, a turret almost, on the northeast corner of the tower, facing in towards what is today St. Catherine's Dock. And they were locked up in the lower story of that. And it's what is today the jewel house shop, where visitors go after they visit to the Crown George and buy their souvenirs. Quite a small little place, pretty secure because it was in the two curtain walls of the tower, but not a good place to show them off. That was happening, but as we'll discover as we talk, it was in a very modest way. It wasn't a suitable place to show them. And as it turned out in this escapade, it wasn't a good place to store them in terms of security either.
1: So you could go and have a look at the crown jewels, could you?
2: Yes, what you did was you tipped the assistant keeper, who was a man to become famous, Mister Edwards. In fact, the assistant keeper, and his job was to look after them. And he wasn't paid very much, so he could be tipped by probably fairly well-to-do visitors of the Tower. We know they've been visitors of the Tower for centuries, but not in the numbers we have today. He would take them into the little room and show them through a grill made of wood, the crown jewels, and talk about them on a very private, intimate visit. Extraordinary, really.
1: Well, it reminds me of... Shooksbury Abbey where I went the other day where I was given a little private tour by a very kind volunteer but this is a whole magnitude of importance more when you talk about the crown jewels tell me about Blood even by the standards of the 17th century he is an absolutely extraordinary human being talk to me about him
2: he is an amazing fellow about which there's been much discussion and I think debate by historians and he's not fully understood i think today it's fair to say and he is one of these larger than life characters you just wouldn't believe it if you read the story so this is made up but it's extraordinary he was really an adventurer but he was a man with quite strong principles and his principles were i suppose primarily aligned to his irish roots and a lot of his adventures and misadventures centered around the fate of the irish and the catholic irish in particular during the 17th century he grew up during a period of turmoil he was much involved with the irish during the civil war and afterwards he swapped sides as many of these characters did that was nothing too extraordinary but he covered his tracks fairly well and it's quite a murky character but he always seems to come out on top right through his life he's a soldier he's probably a spy i think we all agreed on that now
1: and he fought initially for charles the in the civil war and then joined Cromwell and was quite well rewarded after the defeat of Charles I by Cromwell.
2: Well he had rewards on both sides, and he did fairly well under Cromwell, you're right. But his big interest was in carrying on the cause through the reign of Charles II. And he first comes to light again after the Civil War in trying to storm Dublin Castle. The extraordinary thing to do, which is the seat of the Lord Lieutenant, the man in charge of Ireland on behalf of the King, who was the Duke of Ormond at this time. And his life is very much wrapped up with the fate of the Duke of Ormond and those leading politicians associated with him. And this happens a few years before this raid on the Crown Jewels.
1: So he becomes absolutely infamous. He's one of the most wanted men in the Three Kingdoms at this point.
2: He is. I mean, by the time he gets round to the Crown Jewels, he's already a wanted man and people are on the lookout for him. And none of the later favours he receives from the Crown have become apparent. And he's very much associated with Catholic rebels in Ireland. At this time, and he takes it a step further. Having been thwarted by the Duke of Ormond, he goes on with an assassination plot on Ormond. And the idea is to actually kidnap him and hang him at Tyburn, which is extraordinary. I suppose an example of what happens to people that oppose the Irish, even though he's doing this from within England. This fails again, and his reputation becomes even worse at this point.
1: Why on earth does he decide that his next mission is going to be to try and steal the crown jewels?
2: Well, I don't think anybody has the ultimate answer to that. When it happens, he doesn't treat them with any respect. They are badly damaged and in part broken up during the raid. So it's clearly not just a symbolic act primarily aimed at sort of downing the crown. The thinking is that he wants to profit from this, but there must be a symbolic part in it because he is a well-known Irishman and he is a rebel and he comes out of it still visible. He's not executed. He must have other extenuating reasons for doing it. But he's never admits to what the reason what's behind all this. And although he's involved in many accusations of plots and being involved in espionage, it doesn't seem to be a real genuine conspiracy that people have uncovered since around it to even more important and more powerful people than Blood himself. He really seems to be the leader behind it, although there may have been an Eminence Grise, a member of the English court behind it that was trying to get at Charles through attacking the Crown Jewels, I suppose.
1: Well, Charles's succession issues are well known and covered in other podcasts. What happened? Tell me about that day, 350 years ago. So, Blood, he's decided he's going to steal the crown jewels. How did he go about it?
2: Well, he's thoughtful about it and plans it well. So he obviously has some military tactical skills because, although it happens uh, the anniversary just coming up now on the 9th of May in 1671, he started the whole thing as far as we know, at least three weeks before when he first visits the Tower, not as Colonel Blood, but incognito, in disguise, as a parson, the Reverend Eilif, or Eilif, with his wife, who wasn't his wife, as far as we know, a phony wife, with a long beard, a false beard, and dressed up as a parson, asking for a visit around the Crown Jewels. And on that occasion, his so-called wife swoons, for some reason, has taken ill, perhaps by the emotion of seeing the Crown Jewels, and asked to be taken indoors, upstairs, and Atulba, Edward and his wife take her in and help her recover. And at, during this point, obviously Vlad is doing a reconnaissance trip on his planned raid. It's quite extraordinary, but it goes beyond that. He starts to befriend this couple. And he makes other visits and he ends up having dinner with them. And in this process, learns that they have a young eligible daughter, who may well be betrothed to an officer at the Tower at this time, or may even have married her already. He makes this extraordinary suggestion that it would be a good match between Edward's, the assistant keeper's daughter at the Tower, and his own son, and proposes this match and arranges another visit. And so this goes on for three weeks, and so there were several visits. And eventually he arranges to meet with a young lady, who's named Elizabeth, on the 9th of May. And they make an early morning visit, I'm not sure why, it was something like either 6, some say 7am, perhaps that... Something to do with today, the Tower's sort of working day is uh, is run by the military and people get up early and get on with things, so if you want to do something formally, as today we have private visits to the crown jewels and they often happen early in the morning before the visitors come and all the other business of the Tower gets going and it gets quite a crowded place. So, on this day the 9th of May they appear and this parson and his eligible young son to meet up with the daughter of the assistant keeper of the crown jewels. And while they're waiting to visit her upstairs, because the arrangement is the assistant keeper lives in the upper floors of the tower, it's now known as the Martin Tower, with the jewel house below. And while they're waiting for her to get ready to meet up, he suggests well, that they have a visit to view the crown jewels. And they let him by Edwards, and immediately the raid begins at this point.
1: Poor old Edwards. I've got a feeling this is going to go badly for the poor man.
2: He does come across, as I suppose to rise today, as a bit of a gullible guy, even a mug. But we do know that Blood had a really silvery tongue and was a very clever and ingenious man. And obviously he is because he survived all this. And we'll hear more of that in a moment. At this point, it becomes far less sophisticated. They just basically attack Edwards. And he's got two other men with him, a man called Richard Halliwell and a man called Robert Parrott, or Parrott, who are his co-conspirators. And they're all deeply up to their necks in various episodes, both during the Civil War and afterwards in these various plots and assassination attempts that Blood seems to be the ringleader in. And he throws his cloak over Edwards. He puts a gag in his mouth to stop him screaming. And he tells him, basically, if you go along with this, you'll be fine. If not, they all have these terrible long, sharp stiletto daggers tucked into their boots. And they show them these daggers. And then he has pistols with him too. They say, basically, if you play along, you'll be all fine. If not, you'll see what's coming. And he... Doesn't play along, so they whack him on the head with a mallet. Only one account, which is made by his boss, a man we will hear more of, called Sir Gilbert Torbert. he whacks him on the head ten times. So they really practically do him in. And then when he still won't play along, he's stabbed in the stomach. And I think they more or less leave him for dead at this point, or he's playing dead at this point because he realises his, his number's up. So they then carry out the raid. They break open the cupboard with these timber bars on it, and they start removing the crown jewels, but they need to sneak them out of the tower, because of course the tower is still heavily defended. There isn't a, actually specifically a guard at this time. You'd think there would be a young warder outside the jewel houses today we have a military guard armed at the teeth, but no. So they've got to get through the tower and out quietly. So they start to get the prime objects in the regalia ready to sneak out of the tower in their clothing. And now it starts to get quite farcical. When you to one side the terrible things that have happened to poor old mr edwards the easiest to remove crown is the newly remade crown of saint edmund which is the most important crown symbolically and is the one used actually for the crowning of the king because it's a smaller crown than the state crown which has all the great jewels in it unfortunately he tries to squash it to put it into his leather bag what he hasn't perhaps realized is that as in Right up until the time of Queen Victoria the crown in the coronation is filled with borrowed gems which are often hired in fact from the wealthy around court because the crown doesn't actually own enough gems to fill the crown jewels and after the coronation they've been removed and sent back to their owners or some have been put into other jewellery I imagine that belonged to the king and replaced with paste stones so what is falling out around them on the floor there's an account of a pearl being lost and later found by a lady that works at the tower He doesn't even realise what he's stealing. It isn't necessarily of such great worth in its own right. And then another one of his assistants squashes the orb to put it into his breeches. And the third man is trying to break apart the scepter to make it small enough to tuck under his clothing. Quite extraordinarily bloody and messy at this point, although it is all well planned.
1: You're listening to Dan Snow's History. It's the 350th anniversary of the stealing of the crown jewels. More after this.
2: Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velazquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: American politics are all struggle and strategy, passion and persuasion, and so much
2: scandal. And they always have been. I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, we're delving into Alexander Hamilton, whose bio was big enough for Broadway. From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit
1: way they treat the crown jewels it's curious isn't it maybe they were just nicking it for the
2: base metals in them they do smash them up don't they it it does sound extraordinary and you wonder why i mean they probably knew from London they'd been to see as visitors that these were all new items they'd been destroyed quite recently so i suppose if it was a symbolic act it was destroying the new crown jewels it was something to do with getting against Charles II, which blood later claims he's never tried to do personally so that doesn't make a lot of sense and obviously not so well-researched in that they didn't necessarily steal enough to make a huge amount of money. Anyway, they've stuffed these things into their clothing. They are just about to leave when unexpectedly, and this is where the plot gets even more extraordinary and quite absurd and totally like a play or a film, Talbot Edwards, the assistant keeper's son, comes home from the wars unexpectedly. He'd be fighting on the continent against the king's enemies and he comes home and he spots their lookout man outside the door. They have a chat and he says, what are you doing here? And he says, go upstairs. You'll find everybody upstairs. You'll find his sister, Elizabeth, upstairs. And this gives him a chance as getaway man to warn them to get out quickly, which they do. And they make their break in a measured way across the tower and out through a little gate, probably the posting Gate, onto the wharf to make their escape. By this time, Edwards has recovered enough to make a scream that his daughter hears because he's still shut into the pill house downstairs and they all come down and find the poor man there tied up and in terrible pain and agony and wounded and the alarm is finally raised. But by this time the conspirators are already out on the wharf and in fact some of them got back onto their horses because they arrived on horseback.
1: I was hoping they were going to escape by water.
2: It doesn't appear so, no. They start to make a break for it. They're actually recognised first of all one of the conspirators, Richard Halliwell, is recognised as one of the plotters against all men. They've got a wanted man already, and people start shouting their name. Blood actually starts shouting himself as a distraction, saying, you oh, stop thief kind of thing, even though he is the thief, to try and confuse on the busy, crowded wharf of the Tower of London, which is an important sort of gateway to London, to try and get away. I'm afraid to say, the yeoman warders, this wasn't their finest hour. One of them just plainly lets the plotters go. Bearing in mind, they are shooting at people at this time. One of them has to dodge a bullet and they haven't effectively caught them. You've got Edwards' son in pursuit and then the fiance of Elizabeth Edwards, who is another member of the military. He's a Swedish man called Captain Beckman. He joins in the pursuit and it's he who finally comes face to face with blood who has been at this point trapped on the wharf. He hasn't managed to get to his horses. Vlad shoots at Beckman, but Beckman manages to dodge the bullet and he's finally captured. One of the others does get away on horseback, but then he careers into a car that's turning on the wharf and then he is captured too. So only one man from the ones that fly off with the Crown Jews actually gets away at this point. Four of them are captured, of the five in total.
1: Yeah, the fiancé's having a bad day. I mean, his girlfriend almost got married to someone involved in criminal conspiracy. His father-in-law's been half killed and he's almost been shot. So I'm glad it ended all right for him.
2: Well, it didn't, it didn't. They didn't all do very well afterwards. Edwards was pretty badly injured and dies a few years later. His son is also injured and may have died not so long after this raid, the consequences that none of them did too well. And the only people that last any length of time are the man in charge, Sir Gilbert Talbot, who's the master of the Jewel House, who's Edwards' boss, And Blood himself, who finally dies after other offences we're going to get on to in 1680.
1: I bet the boss of the jewel house, I've been in big organisations enough times to realise that I bet he hung Edwards out to dry and just cut him loose. Said, nothing to do with me, mate. It's my assistant.
2: Well, they did all right. They got some kind of a reward, sort of £100 or £200 each, which was a lot of money then. But it's Blood who seems to do best out of all this which is the next part in the plot so how on earth does blood get away with this then? well I can't get my head around this entirely so they are captured they're taken into the tower so turning from raiders they're taken immediately to prisoners close prisoners which is the most secure form of imprisonment of the tower and it was a fairly grim thing we know lots of stories about people who died in close imprisonment from the conditions and he's kept there for a fairly short while but he won't say anything and it becomes clear that he's only going to really collaborate if he can communicate with the king himself and extraordinarily people have been bending the king's ear about this and the king agrees to have a private meeting with colonel blood to talk about why he's done this and he says he will confess to him which is what happens so he goes to whitehall and has a private meeting with the king he confesses this and all these other things he's done, the raid on Dublin Castle, the attempted at kidnap and assassination of the Duke of Ormond, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and even confesses to an abandoned plot to kill the king himself when the king is swimming in Battersea of all things, when he sort of feels sorry for the king and then doesn't go ahead with it. So he makes all these extraordinary confessions, and then nothing much happens. He's moaned about being in prison already, and he's there for a few weeks, a month or two. But within the year, he's pardoned completely. And more than that, he's given a £500 per annum estates in Ireland or regains his lost estates from previous penalties. So he gets better off treatment, certainly than Edwards. Quite extraordinary. He charms King Charles II. He thinks he's a
1: bit of a rogue and sort of takes a shine to him.
2: Well, it has to be more than that. And historians have looked into this and he's up to his neck in all kinds of other dubious business which is, of course, the business of statecraft at this time, particularly after you know, the period of the civil wars. We have to remember that Charles's hold on power is not as stable as we probably like to think it would have been. You know, This is only 10 years after he's come back to the throne or so, and the king isn't entirely secure. So he relies on people to keep him in touch with what's going on with all his enemies as much as all his allies. And... He sees in Blood somebody he can use, and he's more valuable alive than dead. So a deal is obviously done. This deal has never been fully revealed, and he is allowed to go free. But he's then, in effect, reporting back to the king as an agent or spy of some kind.
1: Does the king get a good deal out of that? Blood's subsequent adventures? Did he display any kind of loyalty to the king, or did he renege?
2: He didn't get involved in another big bad event that was obviously aimed against the crown or against the country after this point. At this point in the king's life, he had more than enough enemies just about to enter into our third war sea against the Dutch. And what he didn't need was a load of local plotters <laughs> undermining him. And we know there were many plots, especially in the latter part of the king's reign. So having a prominent member of the Irish Catholic community who was actually on his side, was quite a useful thing to have to keep those people under control. Blood himself describes them as fanatics and that it is better to have one of the leading fanatics on your side than one that make enemies of them all. So he did. And he also acted for the king against Presbyterian dissenters in Scotland. So he did prove useful, but I don't think it's clear what the king got out of it and whether it was worse, I suppose, the embarrassment of blood going free. And there was a lot of rancour about it. We know that... So Gilbert Talbot, the boss of the ground rules, the master, when he finally tells the world all about this, after Blood's death, in fact, he writes a sort of memoir, which wasn't exactly published, but it was well known, and there were various versions of this written memorial of this event and his own life, which are now in places like the British Library, and we actually still have a copy at the Tower of London these days. It rankles against him that Blood's got free, and other people comment on this, famous people of the time, and members of court, John Evelyn meets... Blood not long after the raid. I'm not quite sure the circumstances, because he must have been in custody at this point. And he's totally baffled as to why the king has let him off. But he knows the king is very much involved in a network of espionage across through to Ireland and to the continent in order to help control of power.
1: So you mentioned Blood's death. He died in 1680 at 62. I mean, he's very lucky he wasn't alive, or someone was very lucky he wasn't alive in the William Irish Wars. I'm sure he'd have played a very prominent part,
2: 1688, 9, 19, all that. I mean, judging on his performance so far, he might have done quite well during that event and certainly chopped and chained sides. But, you know, he did die, I think, of fairly natural causes. But in fact, people were suspicious he had actually died and there was actually authorised that his body be exhumed after a few days to check that he was in fact dead and it wasn't just another one of his ploys to carry out another incognito, <laughs> nefarious deed. But he was in fact dead by this time for sure. And it's very telling that Gilbert Talbot, the master... It's only that point he sets out his thoughts of this event several years before. And in his account, he's a bit muddled, probably through over time and maybe looking at different papers himself that he had access to, to try and set the record straight. So the crown jewels
1: that you currently look after there in the mighty Tower of London, are they the same crown jewels that Blood tried to steal?
2: Yeah, I mean, there have been additions and changes to them, but no, they're fundamentally Charles II's crown jewels is what we all celebrate today, with the exception of the three swords... And the anointing spoon, which is the one medieval survivor.
1: And so the Queen still wears the crown that was squished by blood. Did they unsquish it?
2: They did do some unsquishing and repairs, yes. As I say, these odd jewels that popped out as they were squished were placed back into them, and they looked as good as new. I mean the crown jewels have over time constantly changed and been maintained and repaired as needed, and then that's sometimes at the women monarch, but essentially he was the last man to make an attempt on the crown jewels, and they were put back and Obviously, with not a lot of publicity, although more than they would have liked, and it was in the papers of the day, this, and everything was right in the end, as far as the Crown Jewels were concerned, but not for old Edwards.
1: Has anyone ever tried to steal the Crown Jewels ever since?
2: Not as far as I know. Although we make a game that we sell based on this story, called Steal the Crown Jewels, I think it is.
1: Well, I will be playing that, refining my skills for the big day.
2: Just on the Crown Jewels.
1: Obviously, they're sort of priceless because of the historical import and how unique they are. Are they valued for insurance? Like, what is the value of the crown jewels in the basement of the Tower of London?
2: Their value is never discussed. I think they're generally considered to be priceless. I mean, they're irreplaceable. And that includes some of the gems within them as well as the actual objects themselves. So no, we don't talk about their value at all. We just look after them much better than they did at this time. And I have to say, after all this event was over, and after a few years, they did rethink the security at the time in the old jewel house, in this little tower, and they finally put metal bars rather sensibly in front of them, and they made visitor arrangements a bit more um, a bit more controlled at this point, and put a yeoman warder on duty in front of the jewel house.
1: Well, that's very sensible. I bet by the time the Duke of Wellington was in charge of the tower, things were pretty tight. They were ship.
2: Wellington's a very interesting character in terms of the tower's history. He obviously, he was a great military man, he was a great administrator, but he had to deal with something that Edwards had to deal with, which was visitors. And the big thing in Wellington's time as the constable of Town so he's the man in charge of it, he has to deal with much more public visiting. And this is Paid ticketed increasing, and he's actually not very keen on the many, many people he thought were coming. In fact, it was about 10,000 people a year, which is far less than we would hope to have this summer when we reopen properly. How do you look after the crown jewels but make them accessible? And they do move through a series of jewel houses throughout the 19th and then after he's gone into the 20th century. They are moved around where you have this tension between making them as secure as possible, but making them accessible because they are these iconic, important, national objects. And that's something we still have to deal with today. And I think we have a much better arrangements today and it all seems to work far better, but they are stuck within a castle that is designed to be hard to get in and out of. So the irony of the Crown Jewels, they are not in a perfect museum setting that other great treasures of the world are put on display
1: well, I hope everybody listening to this goes and checks out the Crown Jewels. Please the Tower do of come back and
2: see them, especially if you haven't been there since you were a schoolchild, and bring your friends. We will be delighted.
1: I spent my fortieth birthday in the Tower of London. I mean,
2: listen, I love
1: the Tower of London, I love a heritage site, but when my wife and my mum secretly planned for me to go to the Tower of London on my fortieth, I'm like, you know, I'm there most days of the week, right? I mean, I look, I'm very happy to go to the Tower of London, but I was quite surprised when they selected that as a surprise birthday destination for the whole family.
2: It's a wonderful place, I think, to have a birthday. Not many people have thought of that.
1: <laughs> Sebastian, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Everybody go and check out the Tower of London as soon as it reopens. And you can see the crown jewels that were actually stolen by blood. So exciting. Thank you. Thank you. I feel have the history on our shoulders. All the tradition of
0: ours, our school history, our songs...
1: So, thank you so much. Now, sleep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History It. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.